Welcome to The Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamowski talk with Alexis Pattis, president of Pattis Jewelry. Hey everyone, welcome to the Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com, and I'm back in LA. I'm with... Rob Bates, News Director of JCK, jckonline.com, calling in from New York City, just about to go on vacation. Yeah, so we're recording this before everybody breaks for the holiday, though our listeners are hearing this after the holiday. We'll have to do some tricky chronology here with the way we talk. But yeah, I just came back from a really wonderful, very brief ski trip with Hublot, where we went to Aspen to celebrate the launch of a new Aspen-themed timepiece. And gosh, I kind of still wish I was in Aspen. It's so glamorous there. Billionaire's Playground, there's a lot of jewelry stores too. It's kind of uh, kind of exciting to walk around. Tons of watch shops tons of jewelry stores and I guess they're just on the brink of their winter rush when everybody arrives in town for the holiday and the new year. Happen to meet with Oliver Smith Jewelers. Elizabeth Smith is Oliver's daughter and just got a little taste of what Aspen is like and it was lovely. I'm sure it was. Uh, You meet any billionaires or? uh... I overheard people talking about things like the rich moms of Aspen literally as I was waiting at LAX for my flight in. So it felt like- Was that like a show? (laughs) I don't know. I started Googling for it. It sounded like it was a blog, but I, I couldn't find it. So I don't know if I met any billionaires, but I could have. I might have very well. They all kind of look the same in their ski gear and their masks. But it was cool. It was cool to see what all the hubbub was about. I've, I've never been to Aspen. And mind you, I also went skiing for the first time in seven years and didn't break any bones. So there you go. Cool. That's awesome. Yeah. So and you're about to take off for a holiday. I guess that's exciting. Everybody's breaking for holidays. I'm going to um, glamorous New Jersey. I wouldn't consider that a billionaire's playground uh, necessarily. There might be one or two. There, I'm sure there's some, but... Uh... Uh, you'd have to be a pretty non-discerning uh, billionaire to uh, to do that, to hang out there. But anyway, I should be getting margaritas ready and uh, be ready for vacation. But. Aw, that sounds lovely. Well, we have a special guest that I know will be familiar to many, many people in this industry. I would say if we had a popularity contest, you might win that superlative like we all did in high school. You will know her. She's Alexis Pattis, president of Pattis Jewelry based in San Francisco. And that's where she's calling in from today. Welcome, Alexis. Hi, guys. I am very jealous of all this vacation talk, seeing as we're in the heart of the holiday season, but I'm looking forward to 2022 or hopefully somewhere in there, I'll be able to do the same. (laughs) Yes. Oh my God. Well, we'll definitely ask you about the holiday, even though it'll have ended by the time people hear this, but I'm sure you have a good read on what's been happening this season. But yeah, I know you deserve a break. You had a big party last weekend, I know, and lots going on. So we want to hear all of it. I think first, we just want to hear a little bit about how you got into this business. Obviously, it's a family business. So maybe it was always a foregone conclusion that you would enter it. But is that the case? Uh, quite the opposite, actually. So I'm one of four kids. I am the only one that actually did join the family business. And some days I feel like the brilliant one, other days, not so much. But for the most part, I love every single second of it. But I came into the business after spending time in a completely different industry. And I think that stemmed from the fact that when we were little, holiday break, spring break, my parents would always force us into the stores. So of course, when push came to shove, and we're looking at our own careers, it was the last thing I think any of us wanted to do. 
I was working for a marketing analytics company after I finished up my MBA. I'd started there down in Westlake Village and I loved everything I was doing. I was traveling all the time, was newly engaged and getting ready to get married. And I was flying all over the place. And I think Detroit in January was the trip where I started really thinking about, why am I doing this? (laughs) That'll get any California girl with thin skin. That weather gets you when you're not ready for it. Oh dear. So this was how many years ago? So that was in 2010, so about 11 years ago. And uh, during the winter time, true to form, my parents asked me when I was home for the holidays to come into the store. And I said yes, because I'm a good daughter and I love my folks, of course. And way back when, this doesn't exist anymore, but there was a line of duct tape on the floor. And on one side of the duct tape was where our seasoned diamond salespeople could be who'd gone through training and had the proper education to sell loose stones. And on the other side of the tape was everybody else. And up until that point, I'd always been on the other side of the tape and I'd come back for the holidays feeling like a hot shot. And I'm like, you know what? Today's the day I'm stepping over that line. Sure enough, sold my first engagement ring to a wonderful couple. It just happened to work that they had found a mounting and a stone. So our jeweler said it that day. And he actually proposed that day in store. And this couple, I mean, you couldn't have talked about like more of a kismet situation where they were so thankful. He gets down on one knee. It's a whole thing. I'm crying. They're crying. It's hugs. And they're so grateful to me. And I'm sitting here going, I just did my job. I sold you something like this is what I'm supposed to do. And they became family friends. I got invited to their wedding, her bachelorette. I get to see them from time to time with push presents and things like that. And that got me. That was it for me. I was sold. So after that selling of the first engagement ring, I had a long chat with my folks about what me coming into the business would look like. And that was it. Your parents, I've known your father for a long time. They're also first generation. How did he get into the business and your mom? I love their story. So my dad was a student at Cal. In his off time, he would string puka shells and sell them on Telegraph Avenue. And he would then sell at flea markets. And thank goodness in the 70s, I guess puka shells were really hot. Elizabeth Taylor wore a set on Johnny Carson way back when. And it was quite lucrative for him as a student. He actually ended up dropping out of medical school to pursue his dream of being a jeweler, which with immigrant parents, that was not a very popular decision. So he really, I mean, his parents stopped talking to him for a while. I mean, he had met my mom. She was a vice president and the head buyer for a chain of fashion jewelry stores. It was local. It was called Bedazzled, kind of like a Claire's or the icing. And at the time, my dad would go around from location to location and buy all of the clasps that they sold there. And finally, somebody said to him, instead of having to do this drive every few days, why don't you go to our company headquarters and buy wholesale? And that is where he met my mom, Judy. Oh, and that was the 70s, I guess? Yep, so? that was the 70s. So our company was officially founded in 74. So we're about 48 years in business. I'm looking forward to that 50-year mark here coming up in a few years. Wow. Was it primarily a single store in San Francisco for the bulk of that time? We had a couple stores in San Francisco in the late 80s is when they opened another location. So he moved from Berkeley to the San Francisco Showplace and then eventually created his own wholesale building called the San Francisco Jewelry Center where he bought, it was an abandoned warehouse and he drove my mom into the abandoned warehouse in a convertible and said I just bought this and she thought he was nuts but sure enough (laughs) 
not so nuts. He actually sold that building, the height of the San Francisco real estate market in 2019 before all this uh, craziness of 2020. And how many stores do you have now? Now we have five. So we have three in San Francisco. We have our new Napa location, which is located in downtown Napa on First Street. And then we have our De Beers Forevermark boutique at the Broadway Plaza Mall in Walnut Creek, California. So where are you most of the time? You mentioned earlier before we started taping that you've got a long commute. Are you primarily spending time in the new Napa store? If I were in the Napa store on more of a regular basis, my commute would be about seven minutes. So with COVID, I moved out of the city for the most part and moved up to Napa. That commute when there was a shutdown was probably about 45 minutes. But now that traffic is back to normal, I'm commuting about an hour to an hour and a half each direction every day. So plenty of time to listen to your guys' wonderful podcasts. Silver linings, I guess. And, you know, one of the things we always wonder, because obviously we speak to so many jewelers and so many of them are family-owned jewelers. What are the best and worst parts about working in a family business? Oh, man. I think the best part for me is also the worst, and it's getting to know my parents as people. You know, growing up, they were always my heroes, still are my heroes, but as parents, you always kind of put them up on a pedestal. You see them at holidays, at family gatherings, but I'm really fortunate in that I get to spend pretty much every day with them. They're the most generous, wonderful, energetic, exceptional people, but they're also incredibly scrupulous and savvy business operators, and they don't take a lot of nonsense, vacations and uh, time off and... And wanting to have a little bit more of a work-life balance is pretty foreign to them because they've been living and breathing this business together for the last 45 years. So I would say getting to know them as parents beyond just the traditional parental roles is something that I treasure. I'm so close with them, but it also comes with the need to separate the personal and the business because when we're sitting and battling it out over a certain topic or how we want to merchandise the cases or what brand we want to put in, and it's the three of us, it's a business setting. I can't look at it my my dad is my dad in that setting and he can't look at my daughter. We just have to look at each other as respectful business minds and make decisions accordingly. The three of us, it's always, you know, unless of course we agree, it's always two versus one in that dynamic, which is always kind of funny, whether it's my mom and I versus my dad or my dad and I versus my mom or the two of them versus me. So it definitely took some time for me to understand how to navigate that. But it's truly, I feel really lucky. I love my parents to death. They are fantastic. It's a real joy to get to work with them. 99.9% of the time. (laughs) So they're still very involved in the business. And you said you run the front of the house as far as sales presentations and things like that? Yeah. So my desk is in the middle of the sales floor. I am on the floor a good portion of the time. Front of house across the board, operational side, merchandising, and just, you know, interacting with our team. One of the challenges, of course, of having multiple locations is making sure that no location feels like the stepchild of the others. So I really make an effort to take the time to make sure that all of our stores, all of our wonderful managers feel just as important as the rest of the locations. And I feel like with my role, that's really a primary focus and to make sure that every store has what they need to be successful. Well, so how's it been? I mean, let's go back to when you became president in March 2019. So a year into your new role, the pandemic hits. Bring us up to speed on how you navigated that experience. Did you see the same bump in sales that so many jewelers have been talking about since kind of the early days of the pandemic? Anyone in retail 2020 just shook them. There was 
no way to not be affected by what happened across the board in the country. But California got especially hit hard. California and New York pretty much were shut down for at least six months. For us in San Francisco, we had a brief period where we were able to open. And then because of our locations in kind of a mall setting, we weren't allowed to bring consumers into our stores. So we ended up having to do a pop-up in the middle of the holiday season across the street. We had uh, rented a loft and basically turned that into our showroom so that we could function during the holiday season. So I'm especially grateful that we're coming out of 2020 and 2021. It's been such a lucrative year from a sales standpoint. But I will never, ever forget that feeling of that initial shutdown. Our last day open was March 13th, Friday the 13th, appropriately. I had all the store phones forwarded to my cell phone. People were freaking out. You know, when you have people's engagement rings and their family heirlooms, and people are worried they're never going to get them back. They're calling off the hook. So basically, I became a therapist for the first few months of the pandemic. My um, boyfriend, Andrew, who now manages our Napa location, him and I were coming to the city almost daily, dealing with deliveries, curbside pickups. Anytime we did have somebody that wanted to purchase, we were either dealing with them and bringing jewelry up to them in front, or we were doing Zoom calls and webinars and things like that, just to try to keep things going when we weren't allowed to, essentially. So it was quite the year. And I'm just so appreciative for 2021 shaping up the way it has because there was a lot to learn. I think uh, as an industry, we need to evolve and this forced us all to evolve to that true omni-channel experience where we could meet our clients where they wanted to be met, meaning those that were comfortable coming in could come in. But there was a good portion of the population that wanted to figure out alternatives, whether it be we provide a concierge service to their house, whether it be a Zoom call and try to show jewelry that way. It took a lot of quick adaptation to be able to survive it. In through 21, is that just now the new norm? All these different channels, ways of meeting your customers wherever they're at? Is that just standard operating procedure at this point? I truly believe why the heck not? Because we now know we can do it. So why not provide whatever convenient way for our client to shop that they want to shop within? The internet and social media has kind of been this great democratization of being able to sell jewelry. You know, you've got people of all different sizes and volumes on the same Instagram page, on the same feed. So why not be there, be active on your website, have all your products on your website, of course, be open in store, but why not be able to find that balance that works best? for the consumer. Everyone keeps saying that business was really excellent in 2021 as far as jewelry. And there's been a lot of uh, theories about that. Any thoughts that you have as to why it worked out so well for jewelry? You know, it's funny. None of us really knew what coming out of this would look like. Me personally, I was worried that we'd have a ton of divorces because people that used to travel for work and see their spouse every once in a while were forced to spend 24 hours a day, seven days a week with that person. So I'm going, oh man, we're going to have a lot of buyback situations and who knows. But goodness gracious, has it been the absolute opposite? And I'm so happy and relieved because it totally restores your faith in humanity and in humankind that love really conquered all of this craziness of 2020. After such dark times, it's been really a, a light on the sales floor. You're one of the younger people in the industry, I would say. You're very involved and have been involved with the young title holders. Do you see a lack of younger people in this industry and how do we get more involved? It is such a good question. And from the hiring side, I deal with it daily, trying to hire against a lot of the tech companies in our area that allow people to work from home. And half the time they do company outings at bowling alleys and wineries. And here I'm like, well, you can work on a retail sales floor and it is super fun. It's a battle. I don't necessarily 
necessarily have the answer to it other than stores have to be staffed, retail stores in general. And in terms of what we compete against, at least in the retail sector, the jewelry business is a freaking blast. It's, you know, that perfect combination of left brain, right brain, you get to interact with people, you get to geek out on the gemological side. And just voicing that message to anyone that might potentially come into the industry is helpful. What was so powerful for me when I first joined the business and when I went to my first AGS conclave in Coronado is I walked into that room and it felt huge. You know, it's 800 people, it's these industry titans, these retailers that you know their name and you see them in publications. And the beautiful thing about going to conclave in that AGS event is that it's a very small room by the end of it because all of these industry people that you've looked up to are so welcoming and warm. And when I joined AGS, the young title holders at the time, Denise Richards was the president and really her, Anna and Lisa Bridge had really tried to get it going again to encourage young people joining the industry. That was a huge moment for me, getting involved with them and kind of getting that platform to meet that older generation of people that then became my mentors. I very much believe that the next step for us has been to mentor the younger people below us and to keep that going and to pay forward all of that help and support that I felt when I first joined. My bigger concern in terms of the next generation, and Alan Revere kind of mentioned it on your podcast a few episodes ago, was the actual bench jewelers, the artisanal approach to making jewelry. I don't see that next generation coming at all. From the retail side, I'm the next generation for my parents. My dad knows how to be a bench jeweler, but I don't. And then my kids probably won't either. So that skill set is being lost. And that's where I see the bigger issues. Who's going to be making the jewelry? Who's going to be setting stones? Who's going to be sizing rings in the future if places like the Revere Academy continue to close? I know you're extremely active in AGS. I'm sure you put a lot, a lot of time into it and you're very involved in the conclave. First of all, I admire people who go out of their way to donate their time to the industry and to associations. But sometimes I wonder, what do you get out of it? Why is it important to you? It's definitely a labor of love. My college kind of saying was freely you receive, freely you give. And that's something that I very much take to heart and really try to do in my life. And I was so embraced early on in this industry and was so made to feel welcomed. And that really started with me at that first conclave where I met that AGS community and that AGS family. It's an important organization to me because it's one of the few that aren't centered around a particular brand. The only real exposure I had to the industry at large was JCK, which is fantastic, but not obviously an environment to learn and to really chat other than socially. And then there's branded events Corey did Club to Corey, Forevermark does the Forevermark Forum, but those are still under guises of doing business, whereas the AGS community is about jewelers that have kind of put their stake in the ground and said, not only am I interested in being, you know, an ethical jeweler and protecting the consumer, I'm also interested in continuing my education to make sure that I have all of the newest information, all of the newest tools, and that I'm continuing on to make sure that in order to protect the consumer, I'm at the top of my game when it comes to knowledge and what's happening in the industry. And obviously that's incredibly important. So when you take that group of like-minded jewelers and put them in an environment that's not a selling environment where we all get to know each other and learn together and learn from each other, it's powerful and it becomes family. And some of my closest friends in this industry are because I met them at AGS. And what a wonderful thing to have. It's really a unique organization in our industry where it's not about selling. It's not about anything other than consumer protection and continuing education and trying to do business the right way. And you're putting all of those jewelers in an environment together to learn and just engage. And it's something that I feel obviously very passionate about. And 
I would pretty much do anything for because I think it's so important for our industry to work together. A rising tide raises all boats. As jewelers, why don't we all pull on the rope in the same direction rather than nitpick our competitor in our local market? I want to ask you about your Napa store because it's not like your San Francisco stores, right? It's got a cool Breitling lounge and a wine bar. Tell us about it and tell us how you opened it because I think you opened it at a very precarious time. (laughs) Right in the middle of all this craziness. So we opened it uh, September 1st of 2020. Uh, We were either the smart ones or the really dumb ones to be opening it. But that store was really a saving grace for us because San Francisco was shut down. Um, And how we came about it was Andrew and I would walk through downtown Napa, which had been sleepy in years past, uh, especially after the earthquake that hit Napa I believe it was 2017. It really ruined a lot of the buildings. So it was under construction. It was really sleepy and quiet. But we would walk from the house down to the local brewery that would allow you to take crawlers home. So we'd walk down there, get our crawlers, and then just drink on the way home. It was about a seven-mile walk-around trip. And it took us through downtown Napa. And even during COVID, it was still happening. It was much less that sleepy ghost town that I had known it to be while I was growing up. And it's really alive and fun. It's a long, convoluted story, but basically our former vineyard manager owned a ton of retail space and he was like listen I've got this really strange space I don't know if you guys are interested in it but you might as well come check it out and that's what we ended up finding our location which is within the Andaz hotel property and it was actually two separate stores but under one door if that makes sense and that's where we really had this ability to create the Breitling bar and Pattis tasting lounge and then the jewelry side and the idea behind it obviously is Ladies love going to jewelry stores. That part isn't hard, right? But there's a lot of threshold resistance, especially for men walking into jewelry stores. So we were hoping by kind of merging this tasting room, fine timepiece area with Breitling and the jewelry side that we could really create this comfortable, a little less formal, more casual environment for people to come in, hang out, have a glass of wine, watch some football and shop for jewelry all in one fabulous place. You just mentioned that you have a vineyard. How did that become part of the family business and how is that integrated into the whole thing? So we've been in the wine business since the early 2000s. Our first vintage was 2007, but my folks had had the property for a long time and were contracting out the grapes. But my dad, anyone who's met him, he's a very passionate guy and he's a collector and he takes that approach to diamonds. He loves his diamonds. Sometimes I have to remind him that we're not running a museum. We are in fact trying to sell these diamonds because he gets sad when his babies sell from time to time. He takes that same approach to wine. So the nuances that make a diamond exceptional, those same nuances apply to the wine business. So he's got a fantastic palate. Finally decided enough of this contracting out our grapes. I'm going to make our own wine. He has a wonderful friend who's now a winemaker named Robert Foley. And the wine business has become a business. It was a hobby and a passion of my dad's that now has really grown into needing a completely separate staff, which I don't think any of us anticipated. But the wine business is what I dream the jewelry business to be like. It's a very supportive community. The Napa Valley approach to wine is the more we can support each other, the better it is for all. And I would love to bring that same mentality to the jewelry business because it really is a joy to do business up there when you're in wine. And it's called Pattis Wines? So Pattis Vineyards is the name. We're not very creative with naming or with logos because the jewelry logo and the wine logo are identical. If We just change out the word underneath from jewelry to vineyards. Uh, but yeah, so all of them are produced under the Pattis label. Cool. And where, where can we get them? <laughs> you can call me anytime, Rob. I'll oh, hook it up. <laughs> All right. 
Wow. What two fun industries to be so immersed in. There's so much talk of sustainability in this industry. Obviously, since the start of the pandemic, that conversation has gone through the roof. And you're in San Francisco, which is really one of the most progressive cities in the country. Is that something that clients bring up to you? Or do you have to initiate that conversation? What would you say about, you know, socially conscious shoppers and what Pattis encounters? It's brought up daily on our sales floor, whether it be the consumer that asks or whether it be our team providing it as part of our education process. Process. And not only is San Francisco a progressive city, it's also a hotbed where a lot of these companies whose focus is responsible sourcing, uh, whether it be lab grown or otherwise, it's definitely something that consumers ask all the time about. For us, I think really that's where the Forevermark story came in and why we've been so successful with the brand is because it's so nice to be able to say, we know exactly where this diamond's been from mine to finger. We know exactly who's touched it. It's only been touched by the best demonteurs and sold by the best retailers and comes from these local economies that are reliant on the diamond trade being there. Because the diamonds are mined there, there's schools and there's hospitals and there's wildlife sanctuaries that wouldn't exist otherwise. So it's really nice to have the backing of the Forevermark and De Beers story to relate to the customer in terms of the sourcing and guarantee to them that this is a stone that they can be proud to wear forever. Yeah, I actually want to ask about, because I, I think you have the only Forevermark store in the United States, at least. We do. So we've had it now almost two years. And how is that going? And what do you think of the concept of changing it to De Beers Forevermark? Has that made a difference, especially with, you know, people have different opinions about De Beers? I'm definitely not in um, the De Beers strategy meetings. And I don't know what their viewpoint was when they wanted to incorporate the De Beers name with Forevermark. But I can say from a personal experience that it's been really helpful. From just a basic standpoint, they incorporated navy and gold into their color scheme other than just black and white, which really added some warmth and some kind of fun to the store because it was basically a, a white box. So I love the color change. What's interesting about the word forever mark between forever and mark, it's overutilized in our industry across the board. There's 20 different marks. There's Canada mark and fire mark and all these different ones. Of course, the term forever is used all over the place, both in natural and lab grown. So there was a lot of consumer confusion about what forever mark was. And we were regularly getting people walking in saying, oh, is this lab grown? What is this? I'm not familiar. So the De Beers name, like you mentioned, there's a lot of different opinions on De Beers, but it made one thing very clear that we sell natural diamonds at that store. So, you know, for us, it's been good. There's definitely been some folks that walk in and are not so pleased with the De Beers name. But I think in being able to tell the Forever Mark story in conjunction with the De Beers name, they're hoping that that will perhaps turn around any bad reputation that they might have had in years past. People are listening to this. It's early days, 22. What's on your radar? What's on your agenda for this year? What big things do you hope to implement? What are you looking forward to? Anything? What can you tell us about it? Uh, you know, I think the uh, lessons from COVID and the pandemic really ring true moving forward for all of us in 2022, the importance of that omni-channel presence and meeting your clients where they want to be met and really just keeping an eye on what's going on in the industry. There's a lot of changes, a lot of IPOs, a lot of investments and money being thrown around at these companies. So I'm just keeping an eye on everything. And I think the role of the independent retailer is incredibly important. The relationships and the rapport 
that happen on the sales floor and with our clients is something that can't really be replicated in a larger scale environment. And, you know, I think as retailers, especially the independent family ones, we need to work together more to get us all stronger because there's a lot of factors out there in the industry that can be a little daunting to be taking on if you're by yourself in it. Yes, a lot of daunting things ahead, but hopefully 22 will feel like a fresh start. Thank you so much, Alexis, for sharing your story, especially in the midst of the run-up to the holiday. Thank you so much for your time and for your anecdotes and insights. Happy New Year to you guys. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much, Alexis. We'll see you in 22. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. We hope you'll join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.